0: You are listening to the Gateway Franklin Church podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. Seeds, this is week three of our Seeds um, um, Every Family Tree Begins Somewhere uh, message series, culminating in that Weekend that Pastor Chris talked about, our seeds family conference. So, the, the core scripture here is Genesis 1 28, 29. This is, this is the life passage, if there was an original life passage in scripture. Here it is. It's so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female created them. God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea. The birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. Every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to me, the, the, the wow part of this passage is that everything God created with life, he gave it the capacity to create life. All life has the, the, the capacity for life. So, All of life can be traced back to this creation story, yours and mine included. So there's three core facts that I've repeated the other two weeks, and you're going to hear them until hopefully you can repeat them yourself, all right? Our origin is divine because we were created by God, each of us. We can all trace our origin back to this place. So our origin is divine. Our capacity is holy because we were created for God. Our capacity is holy, which means that our purpose is to carry life and to give life. So in a phrase, I say all seed has a divine origin with a holy capacity, and we carry a life-giving purpose. And it's very critical for those truths to sink in because that is the very seed that Satan wants to choke out of each of us, right? Especially every time life happens right? So with each rejection or each emotional trauma or with each life happens moment, what the enemy wants to go into, he wants to question our origin. Who are you? Who am I? Am I of any value? This is a a, a core element that the enemy wants to get at. With each disappointment, Satan then wants you to question God. Who are you? Are you really a good God? Do you even care about me? And we know that life is hard, and each hard Satan's intent is to leverage those circumstances because he wants to erode your view of yourself. He wants to erode your view of God, your trust of God. He wants to erode your hope for a future. Does, it, does that ring true for anybody? Does that ring true for anybody? All right, it's an all skate today, okay? I, they're not all rhetorical questions that come up here. All right, so for the record, God doesn't promise his kids a trouble-free life, right? What he promised us is an overcoming life. One of my favorite passages of scripture, I actually use this in a lot of funerals too, is John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus is the greatest leader. Leaders need to be clear. They need to be clear. They need to set the right expectation of what's coming. That's a good leader, right? And so Jesus is not a cheerleader. Nothing wrong with cheerleaders. I, I, I married one. I raised one. I'm not taking a shot at cheerleaders. What I'm saying is Jesus isn't the rah-rah guy, right, right? He's he's up front. You're going to have trouble. It's going to happen. But take heart because I've overcome all the seeds of that trouble. This is an overcoming life. His His promise is with his presence and his power. So he sets expectations with this declaration, but he also fuels hope with it. He doesn't eliminate trouble. He has greater promises. And this is important to know, that we need to guard against giving up an eternal hope in the midst of a temporary hardship. And you have to guard on that. You have to guard not to give up an eternal hope in the midst of a temporary hardship. And I will tell you, they are temporary. And you can prove it to yourself. What did you worry about a month ago? What was causing you the most pain and consternation a month ago? And odds are, it's not the same one right now. Now, there's some lingers a long time. I understand that. But my point is, even even in the long time of lingering, you can probably go back into your past and pick one and realize, oh, that was temporary. It'll feel temporary, but our history tells us that they're temporary. And there will be a day when all of our temporaries will be swallowed in the hope of Christ. Right now we see through a glass darkly, Paul says, huh, but there'll be a day whether or not I go first or he comes first, there will be a day I will be 100% emotionally whole. I will be 100% spiritually enlightened. I will understand all that I didn't understand. I will be 100% physically whole. There'll be a day. In the meantime, what he promises is, I've overcome the world. That's the promise that we live in. That's the promise that we can that we can carry on and on. No one goes through life trouble trauma-free. Nobody does. But I understand that others have to endure more tra- trauma than others. And the more deeper than it is, the longer that it lasts, the longer it goes unaddressed or untreated, it what, it sits there, and it doesn't just sit there, it sinks. The longer stuff goes unresolved, long as it sits there, it sinks. And so then it means that it needs to take, there's more attention that needs to be given, maybe by people that are even more trained to help identify what is it that has started to seep down and get inside of me. Now, Jesus will always be the answer. Jesus is the one that brings healing, but there's a body and then there's training in order to help people that get gifted in this to help us identify these things and and what's really important is to set them up against the truth of Christ. Because Proverbs 18, 17 or 17, 18, that was a trick to try to remember it, but I never remember which is which. Or it's 8, 7 and 7, 8, but it's one of those four, I promise. (laughs) So the first to present their case always seems right until it's cross-examined. The truth of Christ is what cross-examines our feelings and our trauma. Okay? It gets identified, it has to get dug up, it has to, has to be raised to the service to be dealt with, but then when we get it, we can get it up there, then we can put it against the truth of Christ, and then the healing of Christ, and then healing can happen. Resiliency is a great character trait. It is truly something that we're promised in scripture, that there's perseverance that happens, but God doesn't just want you to be resilient. He doesn't just say to you, toughen up. Well, you need to toughen up. He wants to heal us up. He wants to healthy us up. For sure, he wants us to toughen up. But it's not just about creating an extra, an extra set of, uh, of a skill or extra set of skin to get, to get tougher. He wants us to be whole. And he can do that. And the more fruit that happens, whole fruit in our life, produces more and more whole fruit. Now, that's kind of the core of this message. Last week, I talked about the sower and the seed, um, and I used that parable that Jesus had on how we addressed our root system in Christ, that that our roots keep from eroding, our life being eroded by what happens outside of that, right? And I talked about the soil condition. And I've met people for months and months now that have moved here to this area, particularly they were changing their soil. The, The soil where they were planted wasn't working for their family anymore, and they had the ability and they exercised that choice and they changed the soil. And that's what's necessary for our root system, this idea of our our family tree is where are our roots? And it doesn't matter where your roots have been or what they've been in, God can establish new roots. We can establish new roots. Our responsibility is the soil around those roots so they can grow. This morning, I want to move to um, the power of a family declaration. The power of a family faith declaration in terms of how we manage uh, our seed and our roots. So our text this morning comes from probably one of the strongest, if not the strongest, family declaration all in Scripture, Um, It comes at the end of Joshua, but Joshua begins uniquely by saying, Moses, my servant is dead. It is kind of right there in your face before then God challenges Joshua with this, be strong and courageous, next man up, you're the next guy. All right? And so Joshua then takes, Moses takes them, uh, Israel, out of Egypt, but it's Joshua who takes them into the promised land, what was promised way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham, and he brings them into that promise. And at the end of Joshua's life, it's interesting when you read in Judges, the first chapter in Judges, it begins by saying, Joshua, my servant, is dead. Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Judges, Joshua, my servant, is dead. which is a clear indication. Joshua did a pretty good job. Joshua measured up to Moses. But then at the end of his life is where we pick up this charge. It's a national address. So before Joshua dies, he calls the nation together and he gives them this address, all right? So um, in some parts of this passage, God is speaking and others, Joshua is speaking. So we begin in verse 1. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Now he's speaking on behalf of God. So hear this as God's voice. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Naor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshiped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates, and I led him through, throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, to Isaac I gave Jacob, and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you and took possession of their land. When Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. Do You hear, he's he's recounting the history. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan, and you came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, Jebusites but I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Boy, this is is a sobering statement. He's telling me, where you are and all that's around you, me. I did that. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors who worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. This is his declaration. From the calling of Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph to Moses to Joshua, they always lived in the land of other gods, always. There wasn't a time they didn't live in the land of other gods, from from Egyptian other gods to Canaan other gods and Israel would vacillate between the other gods and Yahweh or Jehovah. They would add Jehovah kind of back in. They would never fully, he just was around over here but boy, those other gods permeated their worship. They kept vacillating back and forth. The rebellion cost them a whole generation in in the desert and in the promised land, this is where Joshua now has brought them through and into this. And at the end of his life, he brings them a charge and a choice and a declaration. And that's what we're going to unpack. Here's his charge. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away. Throw away, which means these, these, they have them. Throw away the gods of your ancestors, worship your ancestors, worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Throw away all other options. Then he gives a choice. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, I thought that was just an amazing word to write there. If God is undesirable for you, if there isn't a desire for Jehovah and you. Then choose yourselves this day who you'll serve, whether the gods of your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates, or the God of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. If this is not the way you wanna live, make up your mind. Make up your mind, make a choice. This is only as a 110-year-old man can say, right? You know you lose all filters the more you age, right? All right, so, so hey, this is what you wanna do? I've watched you my whole life. Would you just go ahead and do it? And his declaration. But me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. It was was a Braveheart moment before Braveheart, right? It's the line in the sand. I've seen all that I need to see. This is where I plant my flag, this is where I'm going to stand. And as long as I'm leading my family, this is where we're going, right? But how do we hear this through 21st century Western ears? What sense can we make of his charge and his choice in a declaration where we live now? It's one thing to get fired up about reading in history. How How do we get fired up about it? Not just even fired up. But if, but if you're still in process, and you are, if you're watching online today or you're in this room today and you have never made any kind of remote declaration of your commitment to Christ, but you're here today, you're watching this, you may be watching this a month from now. You may listen to the podcast two months from now. The very fact that you're doing that, you're in process. You are. There, there's something that you haven't been able to put together yet and you're looking to see what could be missing. And I encourage you to keep looking. You're looking in the right places. So we live in the same religious context that they live in. You and I have only known living in a land of multiple gods. That's the only lands we know how to live in. Our our spiritual struggle is not with carved idols of maybe um, the Eastern European Orthodoxy of icons, or maybe Far Eastern idols. That's not our. That may not be our struggle. But there is a struggle that we still have to fight around gods, and the god that we struggle most with is ourselves. This is the 21st century. It's been a, more than that. But Western Christianity, post-modernity, religious, we are the idol. In one of my classes in my DBIM program, I had I studied under, there was, he was the premier thinker at the time on post-modernism and Christianity and would the church make any impact in a changing culture. And in one of the particular lectures he did, he, he said this, he said, we're either God We're gods, or we are gods. And the only difference here is one character. This is our struggle. We are gods, not gods. And this is the premier idle struggle that you and I live in. This is, the, this is the culture we live in and it permeates everything. I mean, from, the, from as far back as I remember a McDonald's commercial, you'll remember this old slogan, you deserve a break today. Well, of course I do. I mean, who doesn't say that, right? Who would go to that commercial? No, I don't deserve a break today. I don't deserve lunch. No, we all think we work harder than we do. We all think we have it harder than we have it. We always deserve the break, we all, right? And it's because culture has surrounded us with putting us at the center of all of that. Voltaire was 18th century French philosopher who's credited with the, the beginning of the enlightenment. And Voltaire said this, it doesn't sound like an 18th century sarcasm, but I don't know, maybe you can help me, history teacher. In the beginning, God created man in his own image and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since doesn't quite sound like an 18th century philosopher's sarcasm, but it works for me. I I love it, and the Internet's always right. So this is our current worship experience, right? Our, Our current worship choice will always be us or God. Now, there's a technical name for that religion, and it's called humanism. It's called humanism. So let me define humanism for you and see if you think this is the culture we live in. Humanism is a progressive philosophy of life That without theism, so without God, or other supernatural beliefs, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good. Hey, even sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That comes from the American Humanist Association, whose tagline is good without God. All right, here's another one. Humanism is a rational philosophy informed by science inspired by art and motivated by compassion. Now that's, that's the coolest thing ever written right there. That's Nashville all day long, right? Inspired by art, motivated by compassion. There are more nonprofits in Nashville, I think, than any other city, promise. You can go to a black tie gala any night of the week if you want to to raise money for something. Just bring a checkbook. affirming the dignity... We just even used the word affirming. So there's a good word, right, for our culture. Affirming the dignity of each human being, it supports the maximization, or however you say it, of individual liberty and opportunity consonant with social and planetary responsibilities. Now, they had me all up until planetary. Right? But it all sounds really, really good, doesn't it? It advocates the extension of participatory democracy... And the expansion of the open society, standing for human rights and social justice. Okay. We're like lined up, we're in. But then it says free of supernaturalism. Okay. Code for free from God. It recognizes human beings as part of nature and holds the values, be they religious, which is a weird thing how they say that, whether they be religious, ethical, social, or political, have their source in human experience and culture. Humanism thus derives the goals of life from human need and interest rather than from theological or ideo- ideological abstractions and asserts that humanity must take responsibility for its own destiny. And that's from the Humanist magazine. Now here's more simply from the Cambridge Dictionary. Humanism is a belief system based on the principle that people's spiritual and emotional needs can be satisfied without following a God or religion. Do you, do you know you could catch yourself doing this? Um, we are the comparison for everybody, so we want to compare our best day against somebody's worst day, right? We're, we're, we we become the comparison for everybody and everything, and we always kind of elevate ourselves in this comparison. This is this permeates the thinking, the advertising. Um, um, uh, television shows, movies, this permeates our entire culture. So so here's the charge that would come from Joshua and say that you need to filter every newscast, every entertainment choice, every advertising. Um, you, you need to run it through this filter. Who is this promoting? Who is this elevating? Because each of these things in our culture right now elevates us. It elevates us. And the question I have, if we were that good, why are we in the mess that we're in? If human, is it just, we just need to get being better at being human. The only way to get better at being human is to get closer to God because that's the origin of Humanity. Right, We're only more human the more Christ-like we become. He is what brings us to being human and humanity. And if we're in this mess and we're, we're the cause of being in this mess, why in the world would we believe that we can get ourselves out of our own mess? You can't. We definitely created it. We're not going to get out of it outside of Christ and this is what makes Joshua's charge so powerful it's calling out the failure for what it is it is the emperor has new the emperor has no clothes if you want to go back to that kid's book it is the emperor has no clothes finally someone stood up and said dude you naked right it's a calling out instead of all the the pageantry of all this is good and we're going to do this and we're going to do this and all we're going to make it everything better no we're not And that's what makes his charge so forward. Throw away the other gods. (laughs) So then he gets to the choice. He's saying, okay, you got a choice, and we all have a choice regardless of our family tree. But he says, your choice, and talking to them, he said, your choice is you want to go back to the gods of Egypt. And don't you remember, is your memory that short? Is the history that not taught? that each of the plagues of Egypt was a thumb in the face to the gods of Egypt. You worship this God, here comes this plague. You think that God's important, here comes this plague. God's saying he was establishing his dominance. You know, every God of all these other countries, they, they were assigned they were specific things, whether it be fertility or a, a bumper crop or military victory, they all kind of had their thing, and God's going, nope, nope. This, what's your resume? Nope. Your resume? Nope. He said, those are the gods you want to go back to? Oh, okay. How about the ones that were in the land? We're in, we're in this land now, this land that, you know, God's given us and, and you want to worship their gods? Do you not remember Jericho and their walls? Nope. Do you remember the next one, all their armies? Nope. The 10 cities that you plowed through? Nope, 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 nope. nope. And it was well known when your God was, was beaten, your God was less than the other gods. So that's why they would destroy your worship practices. They would destroy all that kind of stuff. And he's saying, Are those the gods you want to go back and worship? So let me, let me ask you if you come to Christ as an adult, this is an easier question. If you've come to Christ as an adult, do you remember the moment when you came to Christ? Do you remember what led you there? More than likely, you do. And Joshua's charges, do you really want to live like the way you used to live? You, you want to vacillate between Jehovah and yourself as being an object to worship? Does that, does that really make sense? Now, if you came to Christ as a child or as a, a younger or a student or whatever, it seems, it seems more difficult to wrap your brain around that, right? I, I, I came to Christ at a, at a young age, At a youth camp, that's why I always push youth camps and I thought people come to Christ in youth camps, but it worked for me. So, you know, Um, I accepted a call, received a call to ministry at a young age, um, late in high school and and going to college as a result of that and been doing full-time pastoral ministry for 34 years. And it could be easy to go, I did that. And the more I thought through that, no, no, ain't no telling where I'd have been. The choices I would have made what I would end up doing or not doing. Now, I don't know if I would have been an ax murderer or anything like that, but I, but I, but I don't know if morality, a, a Christian ethic, I don't know if that was going to be my driver. I don't know that coming to church on a regular basis to stand with a bunch of people and sing out loud would have been something high on my priority list. But it's changed me. And I live in the same world you live in with the same promises you live in and the same laws that you live in. Or you could have had it better doing this. You'd be happier if you did this. Or if you just indulge this, or no one's gonna know about this. And what Joshua's saying is you have those choices. There is no love without choice. God lays it out there plainly. But in Joshua's choice, he said, but is that really what you wanna do? It keeps coming back empty. It over-promises, under-delivers, all the time. And so this is what he says in the end. So, in light of these things, me over here, my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's the choice we're making. You guys, you do what you think's best. But in light of history, and light where we are, it's me, all in service. And why did it matter as a nation? It matters to the nation for the same reason why it matters in your family. Identity breeds identity. Resolve, firm resolve. There was a pastor in this gathering. He said as as any more than he's ever lived, he's been in ministry a long time as well. He said we need a heart of flesh, we need a soft heart, and we need a spine of steel. Resolve breeds resolve. Line in the sands, this is what we do as our family. This is what we believe. And then confidence breeds confidence. Confidence breeds confidence. Early on in Gateway's life, Gina was my only confidant. Um, We've been married 31 years, and you see her as Gina who greets and and does all this stuff, and you you love her, and you should. You should love her more than you love me. Um, What you don't know what she does for this church is what she does when nobody sees. And I don't mean cleaning the countertops. I mean, she talks me off ledges. She pulls me out of holes and ditches. She says, do you really want to say that? And one particular day when I was being very insecure, she looked at me and it was, a, I mean, it was a line moment for me. She said, when you're confident, I'm confident. When you're not confident, I'm not confident. And I went, Whew. okay. So there's more at work here than just little old me, right? Little old me having my little bit bad day. We had a rule in the early days, we couldn't have a breakdown on the same day. You could have one, but we just couldn't have them at the same time. It's a good life lesson, married couples. Let each other have their day, but you just make sure you don't double up. Um, And so that was, and Joshua's declaration carried the day. So we read later on in that chapter, here's, here's what, so national gathering, he makes that declaration, here's how it goes on. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them the decrees and laws. He went back over all what Moses would have done. It says, and Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and he set it up under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. And I thought how ironic, since we're talking about family trees, that he builds an altar. Basically, this would have been an altar. It would have been a standing stone. It would have been a testimony to, to future generations, testimony to them of what declaration they had made. And he sits it up underneath the tree. He said, see, he said, all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to God. That's pretty bold. And then Joshua dismissed the people, each to their own inheritance. It, it was a codified, it was a codified declaration. It was this is what we believe, this is what we've declared, and this is where we're going to sit. Um, it was a burn. ships moment and I will tell you the idea of ambiguity in Christianity is just about over. The the Jesus people are nice people that's almost offensive to me that that becomes the standard barrier of whether you're a Christian or are you nice? Have we really is that really what we've come to? That our demeanor and not our deity marks our identity as Christians. There are a lot of nuns these days. You'll see the statistics growing. You'll see um, newscasts saying that Christianity is dying in America because there are less people affiliating with Christianity. But what it is, the nuns, is there's never been, or they've walked away somehow from some declaration where they said, this is who I am, and I am in Christ. Christ. Christians—the term came in the church at Antioch, and, and um, maybe Acts nine—and it was a—it deri- was a pejorative term. It was—it was a derisive term. Um, they called them little Christ's, and it stuck. They're like Jesus. I'm not—I'm not afraid of the word Christian because I understand its origin and its source but we're just not little Christ. The church has also been known, Christians have also been known as people of the book. People of the book. That this is our filter. We declare that we serve Christ and this is our filter. This is our rule. This is what we follow. This is where we get encouragement from. This is where hope comes from. We're people of the word. And they were also called people of the way. They would ask, are, are you a part of the way? How we live? What filters our decisions? What do we let in our house? What do we let out of our mouths? There, there, there is becoming less and less room for ambiguity around who you are in Christ. Because listen, if it is a loosely held bond you are not far from letting it go because the pressure will increase all the more. But when you make a declaration, you make the choice, it is easy to hold on to because you make that declaration in, a, in wide open spaces. I know what I'm doing. I know where I've been. I know where I'm going. And this is who we are, and this is who my family is. Declarations, they forge identity. They forge it. They anchor your resolve because you, can know, you know what you have anchored and declared. And what I love is also they chart a course. They, they provide the foundation for where I'm going, not just where I am. And that's what declarations do. I, come on up, team. I've lived long enough that I've seen a variety of parental styles, parenting styles, not that I grew up too too much into this in my household, but I but I but I know there was very restrictive, um, um, domineering, kind of lay down the law, legalistic kind of kind of kind of homes around around Christianity. And um, the great revealer to me of where, how was that sticking or not was the driver's license. Because the driver's license was the first, in my generation, was kind of the first freedom kind of choice. Now, I had, I had a choice, right? Freedom is a great root revealer. What do you do when no one's looking? Today, actually, I think the driver's license have given way to the cell phone. The cell phone becomes the great revealer actually I think this is a good thing not a bad thing because we can start earlier in trying to assess what, what roots are sinking down in our kids and what aren't so I'm, I'm not suggesting you get your 7 year old a cell phone so that you can you monitor this but you know kids get phones earlier and earlier and moms and dads you, you ought to know I mean when we gave that phone to Annie we were very clear this ain't your phone It's <laughs> my phone I wrote the check for that phone. Every month I write the check for that. That's my phone. And if we can't agree to that, we ain't gonna have a phone. Now she's not here today, so I can, I can say that. She probably watched at 9, not 11. But then I've also seen, see, here's my point. Our kids need to know what we're for, not just what we're against. And I understand that we want to protect our kids. I understand, and this is, this is not pastor speak. This is real stuff that happens in our country, right? The, the, the drag queen reading hour at public libraries. And you know me, you guys know me, I don't pull stuff out to sensationalize. I mean, this, this is real stuff. And I can understand then the need to circle the wagons. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you that the kids need to know what the wagons are that you're circling. They, they, need, they need to know what you stand for and why you stand for it. And I'm not a big proponent of trying to explain to my five-year-old what they need to do, you know. I, but I'm telling you, that there needs to be more understanding of what we're for and, and who we are for and why we are for it and the damage this other stuff does. Yes. Okay, instead of just, this is what we say. But I've seen the other parenting side. I've been old enough that I've seen the other parenting side. We, we just let our kids make their own choices. They just make their own choices. Well, that's fine. Okay, you want to give them a buffet? But I've never seen a parental buffet that included Jesus that had that, that, that mentality. And if you're going to give them a buffet, please have something other than Jello. I, I get that kids will have to, they'll come to the point they have to make their own decision. I get it. I've had to. Our daughter's had to. My wife's had to. You've had to. I get it. I don't have any problem with my daughter making her choice. But at the end of the day, I wanted to look back and say, "She has gotten the best picture of who Jesus is that we could possibly." And not saying because you know, goodness gracious, if you're close enough to me, I probably apologize to Annie more than I apologize to anybody in my whole world. Promise. Her and I, we could we could just get after it. Micah's laughing because Micah heard half of those conversations. But I'm also the first to be kneeling up there by her bed saying, I'm sorry. And it's just not because I was nice. Because I knew this is my family. And I need her to see Jesus. And she just didn't see him. He was not present that afternoon. But he is circling back tonight. you have might have made this direct declaration in your life before it might have been a long time you might have found yourself in the place that all of us find ourselves living in a world and a country and a culture of other gods and one that pushes you as god is very hard to say no to am i telling the truth it's very hard to say no to yourself as being god it's very hard to tell yourself anything different than I deserve it and I'm this and if you would have known this then it's and that's why it is more subtle and more destructive than any man-made, crafted, carved idol that could have ever, ever existed. So there has to be times in our life where we circle back around and we burn the ships and we draw the lines and we say this, this is who I am. This is who we are declaration I don't care what I don't care what else is going on our house we're serving the Lord our house we're all in our house scripture is our guide. our house we aren't the gods and so we're gonna sing this I speak Jesus because it was to me it was very much a declaration kind of song um and so, especially the part where I speak it over my family, and I encourage you, I want you to sit in this in a moment as they lead, but, but when you become ready again to make that declaration today, I want you to stand. If you're in process of making this declaration and you're still trying to figure it out, I want you to hear me loud and clear. This is, this is a great place for you to figure that out. The people around you, this is a safe, this is a safe place. Good questions are always welcomed. What's a good question? All of them? All of them. Whatever you gotta work through, whatever past you're working through, this this is a great, I'll vouch for the people sitting around you. So Father, in this moment, It's a holy moment. I could almost see in my mind Joshua at 110 standing, looking out over the vast number of people of Israel. I could see him recounting all of what you've done, knowing that he was about to die, giving this last charge. And as that 110-year-old patriarch of that family saying, my house, will continue to serve the Lord. Lord, drive that deep inside of each of us. For the people watching online today, I pray that it charges them up and they'll stand in their living room or in their kitchen or in their bedroom or wherever they're watching. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.